0: Okay, let's do this one last time, yeah?
1: Spider-Man! Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Spider. Spider. Call me Spider-Man! I want that ball-crawling arachnid prosecuted! I'm Spider-Man. I want him strung up by his web! Your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. I want Spider-Man!
0: hello true believers welcome to the spider-man book club this podcast is all about digging into the library of everyone's favorite wall-crawling menace and his amazing corner of the marvel universe i'm your host jj hodges and today i'm joined by a very special guest mr chris clow from the comic binge sir how the heck are you today
1: Doing all right. Thank you for the invitation. It's nice to to be back, but also nice to be here for the first time in a weird way, you know, <laughs> considering yeah. what we talked about last time. Since I hijacked this and turned it into the Superman book club to a degree, <laughs>
0: so <laughs> um, th- that was totally acceptable since we were talking Stanley's Superman, and uh, you know, this podcast is devoted to his most famous creation. I, I dare I say, um, although I don't think that. Uh, I don't think that's a hot take. Um, and if it is, it's my show. I can say whatever I want. Uh, <laughs> so, Chris, um, you know, last time you were on, I alluded to this before we were uh, recording. Uh, I didn't ask you my traditional first-time guest Spider-Man questions because we weren't talking about Spider-Man. Um, but I still loved that conversation. That was great. Um, so I'm going to ask you now, what is your origin story of a spider-man when were you bit by the radioactive spider
1: well that's a good way of putting it um <laughs> probably i mean as if people remember the last time i was on this show then they probably realized that superheroes in general came into my being because of dc because of superman and batman primarily so the thing that really opened my eyes to the fact that a whole other world of these characters existed was the Spider-Man animated series that started in, I believe it was 1994. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was on Fox kids. When I came home from school, it was on the same network that Batman, the animated series was on, but I mean, it was Spider-Man. It was a totally different, it it was going for a more, I think what I can say about it now is that it was going for a more like classically comic book aesthetic and storytelling style um but it was utterly captivating to me as a kid and and it just it opened me up to you know jumping on to the X-Men show and the Spider-Man show had a lot of great crossovers and of course other series took place in that shared world later you know you had an Iron Man show and a Hulk show so it was really the the Marvel animated universe, I guess, that uh introduced me to Marvel in a wider way. Um, in terms of like really getting to know Spider-Man as a character, I think I read a few occasional Spider-Man comics as a kid that were by the predominant teams of of the period of like the mid to late nineties. Um, and then uh I just, I kind of fell off. And then one day when I was at at my high school, when I was, I think it was a sophomore, they, I I went to a, I lived in a very, very small town. I'm talking like under 9,000 people, five minutes from the Canadian border, a cow town, like a hardcore farming community. It seemed like I was in the middle of nowhere. You know, it was just this very isolated place. You're in Smallville. So <laughs> sure, it, it did share some commonalities with that environment, absolutely. Yeah. But um the one of the results of that is that the availability of comics in my school library was relatively limited. So when mm. something came in, I was immediately excited and snatched it up. And one of the things that I saw that had just come in, it was a pretty thick hardcover of Ultimate Spider-Man. It was the first, I think. Gosh, it must have been 15 or 20 issues in, in one collected edition. Mm. Uh, so I immediately checked it out. And uh, so I I read the first like 15, 20 issues of Ultimate Spider Man before I even knew who Brian Michael Bendis or Mark Bagley were. Yeah. And, um, so that was like something that I started to really get into. Uh, and then that was like right around the time the movie came out. So I think it was like. They must have ordered that book on the train of the movie hype. Like, that's my guess. Sure. Um, so that was really like a summer of Spider-Man. You know, I read this I read this book close to the end of the school year, went to see the movie with my dad. And uh, from then on, you know, I just like I, I needed to to absorb more about him. And I voraciously began reading pretty much anything I could get my hands on this was also right around the time that, uh, well, that, uh, Brian Michael Bendis had, uh, well, not, no, no, no. With J. Michael Straczynski had been on amazing. Like he started in, um, I think it was like around 2000,
0: 2001,
1: mm-hmm. uh, would proceed to be on the book for the next several years to come. And, um, in 2007, the year after I graduated high school was when I became a comic book retailer, so, all of a sudden, my access to back issues was voluminous. Like, mm-hmm. I had anything at my fingertips, and it was work to read that stuff during the day, you know, yeah. to, and to familiarize myself with the mechanics of the Marvel Universe. Cause I had pretty high familiarity with the ins and outs of the DCU, but not so much the Marvel U. So, I voraciously read a, a bunch of like highly celebrated Marvel stories, Spider Man stories, you know, like, and invasion of the spider slayers you know the uh the return of the green goblin uh, mm. uh <clears throat> the death of gwen stacy uh and even like the the drug the anti-drug story that they wrote with the permission of the white house you know <laughs> where, where harry osborne got addicted to pills they never said what the pills were right right you know so from that point on You know, it became very clear that Spider-Man is a top tier Marvel character in my mind. My favorite Marvel character is still and probably always will be Steve Rogers. But Peter Parker is right up near the top. And it's because of all of the things that he brought to superhero storytelling at large that his best storytellers have continued to use with him. I mean, he brings... Uh, an undeniable degree of relatability to the life of a superhero that is pretty much entirely attributable to him and by extension to stan lee steve ditko and john romita Mm senior and um his place in the marvel universe is just so fascinating because within the world he inhabits spidey's probably like a third or fourth tier hero even though in the world we inhabit he is the mascot of marvel like when you think marvel you think spider-man Right. There's a weird sort of cognitive dissonance that exists between the place he occupies and then the, the place he, he maintains in the public consciousness. And, but it also gives them license to tell all sorts of really interesting stories about Spider-Man. So when I became a retailer, I voraciously read the entirety of Ben of, of, of Straczynski's run. I read pretty much the entirety of ultimate Spider-Man up to that point, went back to people like John Byrne and Todd McFarlane and, uh, and just jumped in full bore. So uh, I like to think I have a pretty good understanding of who this guy is and what he brings to the table. And I'm uh, smart or stupid enough to know for a fact <laughs> that he is uh, incredibly special.
0: You know, it's it's funny the way you put that, that, that Spider-Man is the, the the Marvel mascot. Right. Um, and, and I think that's such a funny way to put it because in, in, because I think you're 100 percent right in what you're saying, which may be a controversial take being a, <laughs> the host of a Spider Man podcast, but in the world of Marvel, he is kind of lower tier, and and only in in the sense of you know his power set and who he is in relation to the rest of the world, right? Public menace, right? You know, right. I say I say right off the top, you know, everyone's favorite wall crawling menace, um, <clears throat> and there's and there's you know. People who think of him that way in, you know, not just the Marvel universe but the Ultimate Universe. Well, when it existed, I guess it's coming back this summer.
1: Uh, Oh wow, um, I'm way behind then.
0: Something like that, I think. uh, uh, Jonathan Hickman's writing something. I don't know. I mean, Hickman's brain is—he's like Grant Morrison, you know. Their their brains just work on a different level. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but there's something interesting about this. This character that it, it, it it's fun to it's fun to relate to him because I feel like um when the mask goes on, Peter's inhibitions can drop and he can be the the, the funny guy, be the confident guy, be the cool guy that Peter can't be. But Spider-Man can be those those things. Yeah. But yet um what makes this character so great is that we're talking about Peter Parker. Like the story we're going to talk about today is very much a Peter Parker story, uh, mm-hmm. despite, you know, having a lot of Spider-Man in it more than I remembered uh, when I was rereading it. Um, and, but, uh, but I was very happy with that and, and seeing kind of the, where the MCU influences came from a little bit with this, uh, with this particular three issue arc. Mm-hmm.
1: Um
0: <clears throat> But before we get into that, uh, a couple more quick questions for you. Sure. So, um, outside of Peter Parker, do you have a favorite uh, character with uh, within the Spider-Man lore? could be supporting cast, love interest, hero, villain, yada yada.
1: You know, weirdly enough, it's probably Jonah. Just because <laughs> he's immensely entertaining in the hands of, of the right storyteller, but he mm-hmm. also has provided uh, a lot of almost parental guidance some of it's backhanded but there's other parts of it where you can see very clearly that he has an incredible affinity for this kid that he knows yeah Um, you know spider-man aside which is hard to do of course but jonah's relationship with peter i find particularly compelling because of how unreliable a narrator he is and how unreliable a um uh describer he is of of Mm -hmm. the kind of person that peter is but then you do have like these quieter moments where he feels very protective of peter in a lot of ways and Mm -hmm. like i i don't really like the stories that get away from the uh the, the core dynamic that was originally established between them mm-hmm. there have been a couple of instances where you know like uh, if Jonah's the mayor of New York or something to that effect and and Peter is around that they've managed to get some of the things across I think Dan Slott is a good example of someone who managed to preserve that dynamic even if Peter wasn't an employee of Jonah's or a contractor for Jonah yeah, yeah but yeah. um I think that Jonah does provide a, an interesting moral counterbalance and argument to a lot of the preconceptions that Peter himself has about being a superhero. And uh, there's one story, I think it was like, it was called Spider-Man number one, where it depicted like the first team up between Spider-Man and Captain America. Hmm. And um, there was a story that came out in the Bugle about Spider-Man being a menace. And all of a sudden you have Captain America in the offices of the Daily Bugle. And this is one guy that Jonah just thinks is a way above reproach. Like he wouldn't even presume to question the moral authority or the other authority that Captain America has. Right. And he has Captain America telling him that Spider-Man is an honorable guy. And it's it just throws him for a loop. And I always thought that that was a lot of fun, but the paternal quality that Jonah has in the right hands can be a refreshing instrument in a story featuring Peter in terms of other characters that I really gravitate toward. I mean, I think Norman Osborn is fascinating and uh, particularly in the ways that he's been used over the past, like 15 or 16 years, you know, because the goblin hasn't been as much of a, of a component of Norman's personality, but I loved when he led the Thunderbolts. I loved when he was in charge of hammer as the shield replacement, you know, turning him yeah. into the hero of secret invasion was a really novel idea. And I actually really enjoyed most of the, the initiative for dark rain, you know, that yeah. it, the fact that you had someone who was so reprehensible being in charge of the Marvel universe's, uh un police force for all intents and purposes created a very fascinating dynamic particularly for peter himself because he knows exactly who this guy is but he is powerless to do anything about it and i thought that that was a really i didn't think they they pushed that enough like you saw norman against tony stark a lot eventually you know steve came steve was dead for most of dark Reign, but when he came back there was a mm-hmm. confrontation there i mean he clashed with thor There wasn't enough of Norman versus Peter during that time, but what we did get was pretty great.
0: I'm so glad you mentioned that because the secret invasion is what got me back into like monthly Marvel comics back in like 2008, nine, whenever it came out. Yeah. And, and then the, the dark Avengers stuff is still some of my favorite comic books of all time. Oh sure, And, And the way Bendis wrote that plus the new Avengers stuff, and they tied in a little bit was just so good and yeah. and and also the in dark avengers mike uh Dado, if i'm saying his name correctly yeah um you know the, the way he drew osborne he just he looked like Tommy lee jones that was kind of yeah. cool so <laughs> yeah.
1: well, um, he he had a very clear casting choice in his head for that but right. I mean, Diodato is just a fascinating and, and incredible artist yes uh, yeah, that was a very good series. Um,
0: I yeah you know, I, I love it, and and you just given me a thought to cover some of that on the show at some point because you know why not? It's Spider Man related ish. Well, um, the
1: the Dark Reign Spider Man one shot that Dan Slott wrote and that Adam Kubert drew that was probably one of the single best things that came out of Dark Reign because it was that confrontation that I think we had been waiting to see for a while. You know Norman has this ascension, so what does what can spider-man possibly do about mm-hmm. that and you can you know too during a lot of the dark Reign stuff the story that was being published in invincible iron man at the time when matt fraction was writing it and salvador Laroco was the artist on it mm-hmm. uh involved tony turning the superhero identity database over to norman uh yep. and the first name norman typed in was spider-man mm-hmm. and, of course, nothing came up because there was only one name left in the database when Tony handed it to him, and it was Tony Stark, Iron Man, which was kind of fun. But yeah. um, no, I mean it was it was a really fascinating time to jump in full bore to Marvel, so I can totally see why it hooked you.
0: Oh yeah, a hundred percent. Also, didn't you know? Also, help that I had just moved to a, a new town and I didn't have a lot of friends to hang out with because I was still meeting people, so I had yeah. plenty of time to read. um there's that too um and i i still do it that's why i'm hosting a spider-man book club (laughs) anyway uh but uh all right last question before we dive into the story here Mm -hmm. um across all spider-man media i'm talking movies video games comic books do you have a favorite costume
1: ooh that's a hard one just because yeah i know (laughs) (laughs) it's gotta be it's gotta be the 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 classic you know a a good classic rendition i mean i've said on multiple occasions in the past that my two favorite superhero costumes bar none are spider-man's and the original carmine infantino design for the flash like it just those are to me the the best kinds of designs that you can get for for a superhero, you know. It's, it doesn't even include, you know, my two favorite characters in fiction. I mean, I think that Spider-Man and the Flash have Superman and Batman beat when it comes to to costume design. Um mm. the rendition as seen in the PS4 game was yeah. an was often my go-to just because like the the art design in that game was so Strong, like I the the costume that they created for the game is good too, but I just don't think it's it's possible to improve on perfection. You know, I yep. mean that the the tweaks that are made to it need to be small in order to maintain the the just definitive iconography that the original design has. So it's got to be the original. I'm boring, I guess. I don't know.
0: <laughs> it, y- you. You you might be surprised that that's uh, uh, Jonah. Jonah is a favorite answer, and uh, and the classic costume is is a is a favorite answer, Um, which I tend to be surprised by because not because I don't like them, but because I I sort of always expect somebody's gonna go big and crazy and say, oh, you know, my favorite is Captain Universe, you know, (laughs) or something, but. The amazing
1: uh, bagman right, right. <laughs> yeah.
0: um a buddy of mine just posted on uh, on facebook his uh, fantastic four funko pop collection and of course bagman is, is one of them that's he cool. says yeah who am i missing and that's like galactus you know but you got <laughs> all the rest of the fantastic four on there yeah. including she-hulk <laughs> yeah um so we today are going to be talking Mr. Parker goes to Washington a uh, a not so subtle parody title of uh, a classic Jimmy Stewart film, which I've yeah. never seen, but I have seen the Simpsons episode of Mel Gibson, the parodies it, and it's hilarious. Uh, written by J. Michael uh, Straczynski, penciled by Ron Garney and Tyler Kirkham, and inked by Bill Reinhold and Jay Leaston and Sal Regla. I was saying all these names wrong. I apologize, gentlemen. Colored by Matt Miller and John Starr, and lettered by Corey Petit. I assume it's Petit and not Pettit. Does that be weird that's how your name is pronounced? But if that's how your name is pronounced, good on you, sir. Um, which ran from February 2006 to April 2006, right before Civil War. The covers of the book say The Road to Civil War. And, uh, man, these are really fascinating stories. Um, just the um, the real-world philosophical debate with these fictional characters is I I think in the wrong hands could just be eye-rolling but uh, Straczynski is a very talented writer and can make it compelling and can make us simultaneously root for Tony Stark and Peter's arguments and you know sigh at their arguments and go guys come on you can do better than that you know what I mean (laughs) yeah uh so so what made you pick this story out of the you know 60 some years of spider-man storytelling
1: i mean i was just thinking back to stories that really got me invested in what was happening in peter's life as well as um you know the run-up to civil war the run-up to civil war was actually a pretty fascinating time in the history of the marvel universe at least Mm -hmm. in terms of Uh, comic book crossovers during that time i don't know maybe i'm just becoming an old codger but it seems like a lot of big crossover events today are really disconnected from the ongoing events in the main ongoing series you know they most of the time in current events it seems like they create separate established miniseries that don't necessarily interrupt the flow of the ongoing titles i mean there's a few exceptions of course but by and large it seems like they create that and granted, maybe that's a better choice. Maybe it's better for people to maintain their sanity. So they don't feel like they have to go out and find everything. But I do think there is something uh, to say about these stories that do manage to, I guess, quote unquote, encroach on the, on the mainline books. And this is one of those examples, you know, we've, we had seen, uh in amazing up through this point and in new avengers you know peter becoming more and more involved with the upper echelon of marvel heroes you know where he is standing uh side by side with captain america and iron man and wolverine you know the new avengers really elevated spider-man's place within the universe he inhabits for quite a while afterward and straczynski was uh playing with themes in in the amazing spider-man during his run that allowed for asking questions about what would these resources do to peter especially if he's starting to become comfortable with them you know if if what happens when those might go away Mm -hmm. uh is something that was played with a little bit prior to this point but it was you know he, he was in the middle of it and then of course civil war comes along and with the benefit of hindsight, we know that it upends the table for Peter in a very, very significant way. Mm -hmm. So the run-up to that was fascinating, particularly to me. I'm a, I'm a poli-sci kid. You know, I, I, my degree is in political science. It's what I studied in school. So the concept of having a story front and center that uh, posits what it would be like for superheroes as like a societal construct to interact with legislators and matters of law. uh, That was really interesting to me. So this story, uh, it was just like kind of the things that I would daydream about uh, in school. I mean, even though I was in school after this, but it was just like, wow, you know, what would it be like if Spider-Man told off a Senator in the middle of a committee hearing, you know, it's just, it's not something that you, really think about all that much and uh, so it was cool to see that side of it explored but it also I think contributed quite a lot to the richness that we see Spider-Man go through during and after Civil War you yeah. know the the stories that Straczynski was very much like a cumulative storyteller the things that happened throughout his entire run you know they pay off more later on the further that you go but this in particular it just felt like everything was being amped up it was reaching a boiling point of some kind you weren't sure if it was necessarily going to be from his family from some kind of confrontation that he could have with tony or a confrontation he could have with other members of the avengers something had to give you know Mm -hmm. so this as sort of the first domino to fall in everything that Civil War was for Spider-Man, that makes this story really interesting to me. And I mean, also it's the introduction of another costume, right? So <laughs> yeah, in in that in that regard, it's momentous on its own.
0: It, you know, it's funny because when I was reading this, I I was like, oh yeah, this is when the costume got introduced. And I remember there being a big controversy, as as there always is when the superhero costumes change, uh, which is why. You know, when you talk about, like, you mentioned the Flash earlier, the Flash and Spider-Man, their, their costumes don't really change very much, you know. Um, as
1: they shouldn't.
0: Right, you know, it's it's like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But every now and then, you know, as as an artist, right, they want to change things up, which is totally fine. And I like that, you know, it, again, we're talking in hindsight, when they're like, oh, Spider-Man's going to have a new costume that's going to be developed by Tony Stark. And then I think we as the fans are, are going... But that's not right. Like, no, he builds his costume. He, he makes it himself. It's fine. And then, you know, this, this costume lasted six months real time, right? <laughs> Pretty
1: much,
0: yeah. Uh, it, it did not last very long. Um, But it also led to, uh, the, you know, and I, I said this before when we were off mic, uh, the MCU costume, right? You know, that that's, you know, at least until Spider-Man No Way Home, was very much a... Uh, a, a Tony Stark convention, and then he, in Avengers Endgame or uh, Infinity War and Endgame he has a version of this Iron Spider suit which never ever bothered me I, I get why people don't like the relationship between Tony and Peter in those movies I never never bothered me I just always thought well, this is their take on Spider-Man and it's a new take we've seen the other takes what's,
1: what's wrong with this one it's
0: fine um Yeah, because to me he still felt like Peter Parker you know what I mean
1: yeah I mean I guess one of the reasons that the the movie the the movie version the MCU version of Peter never has never bothered me is because I read these stories so much you Mm -hmm. know I mean the these moments where Peter is very much in the fold of Tony and even though in in the Marvel universe, like Spider-Man's been an an established hero for a long time, Mm -hmm. he still looked up to Tony. He looked up to Tony as like a a leader and as a bit of a guiding star in terms of how he should conduct himself. If he's going to be a part of the quote unquote, a league of of Marvel superheroes, you know? Mm -hmm. So it always seemed viable to me that that was a way in for Bringing Spider-Man into the forefront of the MCU. And then the Iron Spider. yeah, I mean, it's it's just another thing that is clearly derived from these stories, at least conceptually. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I understand why it doesn't work for some people. You know, I don't like that he's he wants to be Iron Man Jr. I just have never seen it that way. He, he is right. still very much Peter Parker, but he's Peter Parker who was given a chance to be a hero in a slightly different way than we saw in the Marvel Universe. And now, you know, it looks like we're going to be getting that more traditional, disconnected, very low resources, Peter Parker, uh, you know, if if that last movie was any indication. So, you know, if you can have both, then what's what's the problem? You know, is that because it just cl- seemed very clearly descended from these stories in particular, it never rubbed me the wrong way. I always thought that it was a cool callback.
0: I, I I thought so too, especially uh rereading these stories, which I, I you know, it's like I, I, I was joking with you uh, you know, a while ago. I said, I, I feel like I've read these, but I I can't find them anywhere. <laughs> so I like had to buy the, the digital copies, you know, and they're fairly cheap on uh Comixology or you know, Amazon Kindle or whatever. Uh yeah, right. which is not a not a great reading tool. <laughs> no,
1: not, <laughs> not not what it used to be.
0: Right. Uh but A, it it was a little bit better this time, but I think because I bought these three issues as a bundle. um, Whereas if I bought stuff separately, I've had to like, okay, I'm done with this one. Now I got to click back. Now I got to go back. Okay, there we go. There we go. Here's the next one. Okay. So uh, these are the things I do when I should be working. I mean, I am working. Anyway. uh, (laughs) uh, (laughs) My boss doesn't listen to this. Um, doesn't matter. I already put in my two weeks. Uh, that's a true story. Uh, but anyway, we. Uh, but I was. Uh, I was really digging just how. You know, kind of off the beaten path this was. You know, when you don't, when you can take characters out of their, quote unquote, natural habitat, right? So, the story really doesn't take place in New York, uh, only for a little bit. Uh, it's right before Civil War. So it's you know the the title says it all right. Mr. Parker goes to Washington. So it's Peter and Tony in Washington D.C. And I like that Peter is a little bit of a, a a nerd, you know, in a in a nerd store, right? He sees the the Lincoln Monument. Wow, I've never seen this before, you know. And it's stuff like that that I feel like I'm not much of a history buff, but. Uh, and it's been a while since I've been to D.C., but when, I'm, when I've when i been to D.C., I'm very much the same way. I look at the Lincoln Monument, I look at you know, all this stuff, and I go, man, this stuff is awesome. Just to, you know, and, and I feel like i become a little bit of a history nerd, you know, uh, going through all that. Um, and it's nice to see, and again, the relatability of Peter Parker, he's that way too, right? You know, he's just very much, you know, uh, fish out of water, but he's, kind of loving it right and I think that it's just it, that's what's fun to read about it and then of course you get Titanium Man and they have this big fight and he's like I don't want to break the, the Lincoln Memorial you know we got to take this fight elsewhere <laughs> mm-hmm. um, stuff like that it's just like you know what like this is why I love Spider-Man just simple fun stuff like that that it just it adds a uh, you know as I always love to say in these episodes an emotional reality that just makes me happy as as the reader right
1: yeah yeah and i mean the the variation that this story in particular operates from i mean straczynski i think has always had a really good handle on like the humor for peter you know it's always felt pretty mm-hmm. solid to me it felt it's felt pretty authentic but i mean it also does like move into the depths of more serious storytelling and yep. i, I you know whether it's uh tony talking to the the committee or you know the fact that this was going on around the same time that we really got our first major hint at what the illuminati was in the marvel universe right uh, because all that stuff was y- you got the sense from tony that he had a lot of other things in the back of his mind while he was working on this and that illuminati one shot too you know it featured Tony and uh, not Professor X, who was missing that time, but Doctor Strange and Black Bolt and uh, Namor talking about what the eventualities are going to be for the Superhuman Registration Act.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And Tony said even then that, yeah, this is something we need to support. And he was pretty surprised that Reed came to his side. Mr. Fantastic was there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Namor clearly was not. Doctor Strange clearly was not. And it foreshadowed the divisions that were to come. Um, so when you have that happen, like around the same time that he's getting ready to go to Washington and is saying that he's going to try and talk the senators out of, uh, of adopting the superhuman registration act, he still thinks it's coming. We saw him say as much to, uh, to other members of the Illuminati. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: these stories also, kind of helped to establish I think the more antagonistic bent that Tony would kind of operate from during Civil War proper right? Um, I mean you kind of get that impression from the very first few pages of the first issue of this story where you know he calls Peter in Peter and Mary Jane's room in, in Avengers Tower and Mary Jane asks it's only audio right he's like yes it's only audio nice tan by the way i'm I'm
0: kidding you all know i'm kidding right
1: (laughs) right kidding but is he i mean you don't know
0: right right and
1: it's kind of easier to believe that someone who might support this uh this law might start to become more of a i guess big brother in terms of what he's trying to to keep his attention on and granted you know that's also something that they did run with in the movies for a while particularly during Age of Ultron. I mean, that's the thing that in the MCU basically led to the creation of Ultron. Right. So these stories are very influential in more ways than one. And uh, seeing the moral certitude that Peter normally has in abundance all the time become challenged in a new way when he's confronted with the red tape and the regulatory environment that our, our legal system brings. It's a it's kind of a fish out of water moment for Spider-Man, but it also, as we find out, will help to reinforce what makes him such a great hero because it does set the stage for the things that he will sacrifice in the months to come. And uh, an interesting
0: thing about Peter is when he's Peter and Spider-Man, kind of defending superhumans in general uh, in front of the committee. You know, he he makes mention of people who got these powers and didn't want them, you know, and they specifically show in the panels, um, you know, uh, Daredevil and and the Hulk, you know, these, these people that didn't ask for these powers, but they have them now and they're doing their best to do what they think is right. And they shouldn't have to be regulated for that because they need to do what normal people can't do. And I think that there's, it's interesting the way Straczynski writes it, because there's no, there's a naivete to it with Peter where it's like, yeah, but you see where these guys are coming from. But there's also such an earnestness, and Peter's so confident in what he's saying. Yeah, you know, and and I love when he's when he's just Peter and he's talking. He's like, you know, may I say something? I know I'm just, you know, I'm Mr. Stark photographer or whatever. But you know, I I've always felt that with great power comes great responsibility, and I just love Tony yeah. just going, oh boy, like Peter, stop talking, you know. <laughs> But I think that Peter, um, like I'm rooting for him in those situations. Like I, I know he's like drowning in front of these guys, and they're just gonna shoot him dead. Saying like, "Well, don't you think that they should be regulated because they have so much power?" And he's like, mm, "Well, I would like my remarks taken from the record or whatever says. But yeah, it's, uh, uh, it, it it to me feels like. Yeah, no, I, I get where Peter's coming from, and and I'm rooting for him, if for no other reason. Then, I don't know, man. Like I, the the past, you know, at least since 2016, definitely before then, I my faith in politicians is at an all time low, and I'm sure I'm not alone in saying that. You
1: no, know? I think that's true of a lot of people. Yeah, yeah,
0: and it's just. And, and I think that in the Civil War movie, Captain America put it really well, and it said in as much in as many words in this story as well. Like, what if they're sending us someplace we don't want to go, but there's someplace we need to go, and they don't want us to go there? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what sells to me the idea that super superhuman registration is bad. Like, if, if superheroes were real, I'd probably be on the other end and say, "Oh no, these people need to be regulated." But in the fictional world, I'm very much like no, no, no. Spider Man needs to be Spider Man. Don't, 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 don't mess with that. You know,
1: <laughs> that's. I think that's the key dividing line when it comes to trying to analyze this proposed at this point proposed law from a quote unquote realistic perspective. Is that the benefit that these characters have in these stories while we're reading them is that they're fictional, and because sure. they're fictional, we know that they are at heart very good people that do not see themselves as above the society that they're devoting their their purposes to protect Mm -hmm. but in the real world you know people can be very very difficult to get a real read on and people particularly people who seek out attention right can be Mm -hmm kind of duplicitous so it's very easy like that's another thing that i think makes spider-man such a a good character because there's a degree of reality just in the way that he was introduced that people would would doubt someone like that and we didn't really see that very much in mainstream superheroes before spider-man was created so you take that to like the, the logical realistic conclusion you know with this there's a moment in the story, I think in the last issue, where Spider-Man shows up in the committee room and he makes a very compelling argument about what he thinks should potentially be a, a, a better path forward. Yep. But the, the senator says, well, are you willing to take off your mask and provide your name and your residence and go on the record? He says, I can't. Mm-hmm. And says, well, that's why we need this law, because you might be uh, swinging above the ground, but you're not above the law. Yeah, and be able to enforce laws equally between everybody, and you know, in real world context, that's a very reasonable argument for, you know, the rule of law in and of itself. Yeah, but um, when applied into the hyper realistic world of the Marvel universe, where we know these people intimately far more than the in universe senators ever could. Sure you know, it's easy for us to see this as a, as a step too far. So. And
0: and I think that the, uh, I, I always praise the the civil war movie because I think that it was a fantastic adaptation of the book where the book itself. And I've said this in, you know, as of this recording, you know, today's episode will be last week's episode when I post this, you know, anyway, uh, (laughs) but, um, uh, I I thought that the the film did a good job of portraying Tony and Steve as both being just neither one of them is wrong and neither one of them is right. Whereas I felt like the book, both of them could be big jerks. (laughs) Um, Whereas it was refreshing to reread this and feel like Tony is, is still on Peter's side is still on, the side quote unquote of the angels right you know he's trying to say we you know we don't need regulation because X y z you know we're we're doing our best to protect people and and I love when they say you know they have the the budget debate right you know it was such a was such a like I could hear Robert Downey jr you know when they were saying that like well you know there's we've spent two hundred billion dollars, you know You know, rebuilding, you know, cities and and things because the Avengers and all these other things have destroyed it. He's like, okay, well, uh, we've had 47 instances where the world has almost come to an end and we've stopped that. And also, 200 billion dollars in 60 years is not that much money when you really think about it. And and that I I just I I was like, I was reading it just going. You got me. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> like, that's good. Uh, but, you know, it, it doesn't dissuade anybody because a lot of politicians are and always have been, uh, even the ones that we might like, are bullheaded and are like, no, this this is what I believe, and that's what I'm going to stick to, which is just, you know, as human beings, unrealistic, right? You know? <laughs> uh, well, I mean,
1: when, when you place politicians into stories that feature superheroes you know there's there are inherent comparisons to be drawn between them just in terms of the fact that politicians as we understand them in our world and as you know they they operate in the marvel universe certainly as seen in this story you know people get into politics for good idealistic reasons but they also are confronted with the realities of The system's constraints, but they also, you know, look at things through political, um, equations. You know, what's gonna get me reelected? What's gonna get me, uh, to be able to bring, you know, this earmark home to my state or, or my constituency or whatever it might be? And then superheroes, the best examples again, fictional characters, so we can say this with certainty, are looking primarily at the number of people that can be protected by them doing what they do best, you know? Yeah. So it's a little unfair just because (laughs) there's clear moral superiority on the, on the sides of the vast majority of the superheroes. Sure. And arguably, you know, that's one of the things that informs Tony's arc as we proceed into civil war is that he is starting to look at things through a more, political lens in terms of how to cultivate support but he thinks he's doing it for the right reasons he thinks that he's doing it to protect the good men and women that he knows who operate as superheroes in the marvel universe he just thinks that this is the best way to do it and then you know he runs afoul of uh of steve rogers who sees things in a totally different way and you have a very compelling story where you have a character like spider-man who has arguably the same level of moral certitude as someone like steve rogers and the intelligence of tony stark and he's caught in the middle of both of them and how does that resolve itself and they do play with it in a pretty interesting way i think the best way that it's played with is in amazing versus the main civil war series itself but that's not to take away from the main civil war series it's just i think it's a little lighter in terms of the tone that it plays with and when it comes to spider-man himself and we see that on full display in the civil war tie-in issues of amazing.
0: And, and those are great stories too. Uh, the, the issue where Peter and Tony fight and Tony thinks he gets the upper hand on Peter. Cause he's wearing his costume. Yeah. And then Peter says, you know, you, you think I wouldn't have worn your suit and not figured out that you would have an override. I overrode your overridden or whatever he says. Um, <laughs> that sentence didn't make any sense but it's comic books whatever uh
1: it it makes enough sense
0: yeah (laughs) you all know it uh but uh that was one something that has stuck with me all these years even if i haven't uh it's been a while since i read those particular issues it's still something that i uh i remember very clearly and going yeah that's spider-man you know that's my guy (laughs) you know the, the whole reason i wanted to start this podcast because I, you know, I, I've joked about this before, this is a true story. I had a job where I didn't have a lot to do. So I just ended up reading a bunch of Spider Man comics. And and then I was like, oh, maybe I'll start a Spider-Man podcast. Like, that might be kind of fun. And it's like, well, you know. And then you know, I talked to Ryan Lauer and said, Hey, you know, I might do the Spider Man book club. You have the Batman book club? Is that gonna be weird? And he said, No. <laughs> just very simply like, fine, do whatever you want. And I was like, Oh, okay, I was stressing all day over, nothing um as we tend to do but yep. you know. but regardless um th- this type of stuff though with peter and it but it's the you know you were talking about the humor earlier um just the the fun of him trying on the costume uh, his new uniform in the hotel room and it changes color and the and the extra legs come out and how he like reacts to that is just genuinely hilarious. Just you yeah. know, like the, the type of thing, and I'm sure you're like me growing up with the um uh animated series, it's like Christopher Daniel Barnes. I mean he's you know he, he's Kevin Conroy in that sense, right? right. You know, so yeah. when I read a Spider-Man comic, it's Christopher Daniel Barnes. When I read a Batman comic, it's Kevin Conroy. So it's it's fun to have that um hear him go like, you know, when the legs pop out and he gets stuck on the ceiling. And he's like, you know, I, he's like, I'm, I'm going to kill him. <laughs> it's just, it's so, it's so fun. And then we can get into, you know, Spider-Man in the the, the committee hearing. And mm-hmm. he says like, well, this is why I do what I do. And then they're like, well, you're, if you're, if you want this on the record, you got to take off your mask. And he's like, I can't do that. And he's like, well, then your record, then everything you've said has been stricken for the record. Mm-hmm. And that's just
1: so spider-man
0: that's
1: a Parker luck right sure yeah and i mean it's it's i'm glad that straczynski built in these kinds of moments of levity where we can see you know him having a little bit of fun with this costume because really this is the last stop before things start to get a lot heavier Uh, and not just as it relates to civil war but beyond civil war you know Mm -hmm. like uh, straczynski's time on the book was winding down And um, I mean, he left Spider-Man in a a pretty dark place right before, you know, one more day happened, of course, but um, but it's I'm glad that there is so much range in these three issues in particular, because you really do get kind of the gamut of Spider-Man's character in terms of how he responds to crazy situations, but also you know he's sort of establishing what do they call it in the first issue like a blood oath between he and tony yeah yeah that's you can tell that like he's pretty uncomfortable with that at first Mm -hmm. and then that's just really the first step in a cascading series of events that ultimately lead peter to make some pretty pivotal choices during civil war and afterwards so um no, I think that this is a, a shockingly strong story, considering that it's only three issues.
0: There's a lot that happens in it, and uh, you know, you, you know, you're talking about the blood oath. Where I, I think even when Peter agrees to it, I, I feel like the sense that I got from the story was that Peter agrees to it in the feeling like, well, this isn't a big deal. Like you know, we're we're all friends here. What's really going to happen? Mm-hmm. and but like tony isn't telling him everything which obviously like comes to play in later issues and why they have their uh their divide mm-hmm. but it, it's it's interesting to me to to see that where he kind of jokes about it. he's like oh it sounds like you're making like a oath he's like no I, I am Peter and he's like oh well fine right you know, right. You know we're, we're all friends here um because in his mind like we're all the we're all avengers now you know we live in stark power they they have kind of a cushy life you know like you were saying before he's getting comfortable with everything mm-hmm. so there's kind of a you know the the parker luck of it right you know say, like, well you know what's going to go wrong shrug and then you know then the narrator voice comes in and then it did you know <laughs> yeah right <laughs> um and it's and even throughout this i i loved that the seeds of distrust with Peter and Tony are, are sowed immediately where you have titanium man. And Peter makes a point to say, you know, it, it kind of seemed like you knew something was going to happen. If you knew something was going to happen, you'd say something. You, you'd tell me, right? You know, we took that blowed up, right? And Tony's like, yeah, yeah, I tell you. And then you find out that Tony did set everything up and he was trying to, and, and, and it's also not, clear is he selling this was he having the Titanium Man be you know for pro registration or against it right I I feel like there's enough leeway in that that we as the audience can kind of go well what's Tony's endgame here at least at least on first read you know what I mean
1: Well, and this is another reason why it was really beneficial to keep up with what was going on in the other books, because for people who read that Illuminati one shot, you know, this scene reads totally differently because he clearly believes that this is the thing we need to do. Like, we need to stomach it, we need to swallow it, and we need to move along with it in order to make sure that we can continue to do the work that we need to do to keep our country, the world, our neighborhoods protected. But then... You know, he says that he's going to Washington, he tells Peter he's going to try and talk them out of it. But that might be true, but it might not be like maybe he believes it's an inevitability, but he's still going to try to stop it. But then with the, the revelation about Titanium Man, it's just kind of like. Is he trying to make them think a little bit more about, you know, what the affairs of superheroes are going to be like, especially if legislators insert themselves into those affairs? Um, or is he trying to reinforce the conclusion that they already made i honestly don't know like even reading it now and having read this story several times there's enough ambiguity there that you're not totally sure what his end game is right. and uh, and i think that's one of the things that's most fascinating about iron man during this period because he was kind of becoming a villain within the sect of heroes because yeah. of the role that he would play in civil war and you know the you you never really get too much of a sense until really he's deposed at the end of secret invasion when he realizes that maybe he did take things too far but that's all in in comics reading time that's a long period for him to go having total certitude over everything that he's been doing Mm -hmm. arguably i guess you could say that the veneer was cracked um, in that confession one shot that Bendis wrote with Alex Maleev on the artwork where yeah you know, he himself is it worth it and he's sitting there alone with Steve Rogers corpse before he realizes maybe it's not yeah so you know Peter is a character often in turmoil but um and Tony is too but this kind of takes things to a whole other level and he clearly over the next couple of years is going to have to figure out you know what the what the actual right thing is to do. And if he's the right person to be at the head of the superhero table. And clearly by the time we actually do get to dark Reign, I think he realized that maybe he wasn't, but it's a long time before we get there.
0: Uh, it, it is. And it's, and those are such fascinating stories. Um, I, you know, when I was reading secret invasion, I just, I was glued to the pages, you know. It's still, to this day, my favorite Marvel event. Um, And because I think that it it, it had a genuine surprise ending, right? (laughs) Uh, Which some of these, you know, I I feel like just get lost sometimes. And partially because we see the syllabus three months ahead of time, and that gets annoying. But um, then again, I'm reading them every month, so (laughs) some of that's on me. Um, But at the same time i'm i just i'm like man like you know and and you know you were talking about being an old codger earlier like i i feel kind of old man yelling at the (laughs) cloud sometimes when i just go and like sometimes i just feel like these things used to have stakes and now they just don't And, and and maybe i'm being a little too harsh maybe i'm just not reading enough
1: of the no 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 you know what it is it's a cycle it's a, okay. it depends on when you start because I saw this all the time as a retailer, you know. I'm I'm a retailer in my early 20s and I'm just like super invested in what Marvel and DC are pumping out at that time, feeling like these stories have stakes that I can relate to for really the first time in my life becoming a more conscious person and mm-hmm. more aware of the things around me, right? But then, you know, there were people who were my age now at that time who were saying you know what events today just don't have the same punch as zero hour mm-hmm. you know, or the clone saga you know it's just like th- that it's a it's a generational thing i think that that's pretty uh it's a pretty common thing to observe among a lot of comic book fans that's mm-hmm. not to say that either side is wrong you know i i do think that today's fans who are like in their early 20s or late teens who are reading the like dark crisis is their definitive event you know they're going to be speaking in glowing terms about that story in 15 years just the same way that we spoke about civil war in glowing terms or secret invasion in glowing terms or Mm -hmm. whatever it might be so i honestly believe that it's generational i mean i saw it all the time you know you had the the people in the moment that were my age reading those events being like Sinestro core war is the greatest possible thing we could have ever had people 20 mm. years older than us going, you're never going to get better than secret wars. That was just <laughs> definitive event crisis yep. on infinite Earth was the absolute be all end all of comic book storytelling. And then people who were like in their twenties and the nineties who were talking in the same terms about You know, Armageddon, or or Clone Saga, or Zero Hour, or whatever it might, or the Death of Superman. You know, I mean, it's. I honestly believe it's a generational thing.
0: Well, that that does make me feel better, and and not as old as I thought I was. So I appreciate that. It's 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 just a matter
1: (laughs) of when you come into consciousness as a comic book fan. You know, like the stories that set the tone for what you really gravitate toward. Those are always going to stick with you. And then as you get older and you naturally start falling off of the books on as regular a basis as you may have been reading them in the past, it's going to be hard to compare, you know, and and there's nothing wrong with that. I think people just need to adjust their expectations. And then if they go in and they do read an issue or an event that just manages to knock it out of the park, even with those preconceived biases, then that's how you know something is truly good from, from your individual perspective, you know?
0: You know, it makes me think of uh, my my sister, uh, who's a big comic book fan. But for whatever reason, she, I think she missed Ultimatum when it came out. Uh, but she read it, I think, maybe like four or five years ago. So I finally read Ultimatum. I really enjoyed it. And I said, are you kidding me? That's one of the worst comics I've ever read. And we had like a little bit of a deb- debate about it. And I said, I, I still have nightmares about the way Doctor Strange was killed in that show, in, in that comic. <laughs> like, it's just disgusting. Um, but then, but then I think about when I was really getting into collecting Marvel comics, and I got Avengers disassembled, and I was really? like, "This is awesome! Like, I love this." And then reading about it, finding out that people hated it when that was coming out, right? You know, <laughs> um, and and Bendis even kind of joked about it, where he was like. You know, people look at uh, Jeff Loeb doing Ultimatum the way they looked at me doing Adventures Disassembled, like I'm just going to the toy box and just breaking all the toys, you know, but that's not really what I was doing. I was trying to set up a new thing. And and it, it took me a minute to kind of understand that and go, yeah, that, that that does make a lot of sense, you know, and um, so for me reading Secret Invasion and Civil War, I was like, well, I'm excited to see what happens next, because I love these characters, and now I want to see where they go next. And and for someone who, you know, might have been reading longer than I had, it's just going, "Well, this is silly. When are they going to get back to the status quo?" Kind of it. And but I feel like now uh, that's where I am at that age, right? You know, I'm know. I'm at the okay, like they're going to get back to the status quo eventually. Although on the DC side of things, I think it's really exciting for the Titans to be, you know, kind of the premier team. Uh, especially it's Tom Taylor and, and uh, Nicole Scott. Yes, yeah. I mean can't, like, that's just amazing.
1: No, uh, as team. Absolutely.
0: So you know, sometimes maybe it just depends on that as well. But uh, like when Jason Aaron was starting his Avengers run, uh, after whatever the hell event they did, back, you know, back in like 20.
1: Wasn't it Heroes Reborn? It was like a new version of Heroes Reborn. Something
0: like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and I was like. Well, it's Jason Aaron like and, and McGinnis on Avengers. So that'll be good. Yeah. So, so sometimes it's just the creative teams. Sometimes it's just where maybe where my mindset is. I don't know. Um, but um, real quick before we kind of uh, start to wrap up here, uh, one thing about the story that I I love, love, love when these books do is have a hero fight a villain they don't normally fight you know so spider-man versus titanium man is just so much fun you know it's like mark wade's daredevil run that like a lot of it was that right you know was you know him fighting the claw or the spot or whatever characters that daredevil would no- not normally fight so spider-man fighting uh titanium man i'm just like this is my jam right here you know like just, like how are these characters going to interact? And I love that kind of stuff. Like, how do you feel about stuff like that?
1: Oh, no, I always, I mean, that's one of the strengths of reading superhero comics is that there are more opportunities than you get in other media, certainly, for these kinds of -of fish-out-of-water scenarios. I mean, really, like, in terms of movies, I think the first major time that I certainly felt like this was possible now was in Avengers, when you saw captain america fighting loki for the first time i mean that's one of the strengths of of reading the source material is that writers are often just very experimental in terms of the kinds of uh face-offs that they're able to craft and i thought that it was really fun to see this fight especially considering you know how like you want to make pairings that can accentuate one or ideally both of the characters but usually you want to see like how your hero is going to react to a villain that they don't normally face off against, mm-hmm. and I think Straczynski really pulled it off. In, in terms of the Spider-Man v. Titanium Man Dawn of Metal fight, <laughs> um,
0: and it, it helps that Spider-Man had his metal suit, or else yeah. uh, he he wouldn't have been able to land as many punches as he as he could. Oh, um, yeah, which I
1: mean just reinforces the traditional Titanium Man conflict, right?
0: Right, um, and. It's it's funny because I, I, you know, going back to our you know, discussion a little bit ago about the, the parallels between Tony and Peter, I love that Peter straight up says to him, like, say Moose Squirrel, just say it once. And then Tony says it to him later. He's like, I know you want to say it, say it once. And it just made me laugh thinking, I, I love how similar these characters are. And it, it's such good writing that I'm that invested in the story. That I'm thinking of the callback, but I'm not thinking of the callback as oh that's good writing. I'm thinking of the callback as, man, these guys are pretty similar, and that's interesting, and that's, th- and that makes the story that much better in the long run.
1: Well, and I, I mean Tony calls out the similarities between he and peter pretty early on in the story or maybe it was closer to the end but um just in terms of the way that they look at things right Mm -hmm. so that i think that that helps add to sort of the level of rapport that's established during this period and then eventually it adds to sort of the the tragedy of everything coming undone spoiler alert sorry Mm -hmm. but uh no it's 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 a really well weaved story, and um, you know, it wasn't nearly as present in Iron Man's book, but that's okay. I mean, people were probably reading Spider Man's book more anyway. So, mm-hmm. the fact that you had Straczynski devoting his full attention to that dynamic ahead of Civil War just added to the tapestry of the entire event. Some of those Civil War tie in issues were really good, these are among them. Mm-hmm. Brubaker's issues of Captain America also certainly contribute to that. Oh, yeah. Uh, Bendis's new Avengers stuff you know it was all just like i love the events where you have these very different creative teams that all are pointed in the same direction um and getting ready to align all of the pieces for the main event to finally be told infinite crisis is an event i see in the very same way uh, Mm -hmm. just because all of the individual pieces were being aligned to tell this larger thematic story about the nature of heroism in the respective universes and um yeah. It's really honestly like the tie-in material for civil war. I like far better than the main story not to take away from the main story or anything. Like the main story is good, but the tie-in stuff is very good.
0: I I'm a big fan of the Baker Captain America run. I mean, just from start to finish was just brilliant stuff. And of course, you know, when they adapted it to the MCU pretty much immediately, it was like, well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the best stuff. And, uh, and Straczynski's amazing Spider-Man stuff, and and also it it was a it was I want to say maybe six or seven years later I I finally read the New Avengers stuff, and mm-hmm. I loved um, like how the New Avengers issues dealt with like how does Luke Cage react to this you know how, how do these individual characters react to this because that's always been uh, for as good as Bendis is at the team books, when he can narrow in on character stuff, you know, like his Ultimate Spider-Man. I mean, Ultimate Spider-Man is my favorite version of Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but when he can narrow in on on those little character beats, it makes it that much more interesting. And I'll never forget the New Avengers when, you know, it's like you know you have until midnight, yeah, you know, and then the law goes into effect, and Luke Cage is like. I'm just going into my apartment. I'm gonna sit down. Ain't nothing wrong with that. And he sits mm-hmm. down, like twelve oh one. You know, Mr. Cage, you know, we're from the, you know, we're with the police. And he's like, Already. And I just read that and that has stuck with me. You know, yeah. just going, hmm Yeah, mm-hmm. I just I feel this, you know, that emotional reality is palpable in, in these books.
1: Yeah. And, and they, they do a good job of sort of spreading the impact of the larger events across just a wider, more, a wider, but yet more intimate cast because Mm -hmm. you can focus on the individual characters in the, in the time material far better than you can in the main series where, you know, the scope has to be larger by necessity. You're telling a universe wide story, but when you can focus on one corner of the universe, you can tell some pretty compelling interpersonal stories too, that I think are, are really strong. And again, just add to the whole tapestry of everything.
0: 100%. Um, so Chris, this has been such a blast uh, getting to talk about this with you. Um, I always love having you on either show. Uh, we just recorded not too long ago for, uh, for comic junkies. Um, so just my, my, my plan to steal you away from Paul Herman. Don't tell him. um uh, <laughs> uh, but this this has been uh, it's been a lot of fun. Um so the one more question or sure. not question. Uh one last thing. Let's give your local comic shop a shout out. Uh where do you go nowadays?
1: Great question. Yeah, I go to Subspace Comics in Linwood, Washington. Mhm. Um, it's run by, uh, by a great guy named Brian. Um, he has been very involved in the Pacific Northwest comic scene for quite a long time, uh, helped to organize like the Emerald city, the original versions of the Emerald city comic con and Rose oh. city comic con. And he's, he's just, he's pretty connected just in terms of the, the comic scene over here, mm-hmm. but he's also just a, a solid retailer and um, he's got a great store And uh, I love going there. I I try to go every week, but it's usually every two. Mm -hmm. And um, he's also a big Star Trek fan. So we also connect on that basis as well. But um, Subspace Comics is a great comic shop. If anyone who listens to this is in the Pacific Northwest, they should definitely give it a try.
0: Uh, One of my favorite things to do, and it's it's been a while since I've had a... You're not new, but new-ish guest. (laughs) Um, Where I have uh yeah I, I when i travel to new cities i love visiting new stores oh um, yeah yeah it's just it's it's something i i love to do um like for example when uh my great aunt uh, who passed away about 10 years ago uh lived in richmond virginia uh there was a, a comic book store there I, I don't remember the name of it but uh it didn't have a sign out front it just had like in, in place of a sign was the batman logo when I was a little kid, I was like, Dad, can we go to the Batman store? <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, and I did go there about like, I want to say like seven years ago. And I was just like excited to walk around. And it was, you know, as an adult, I was like, Oh, this is a pretty normal looking comic book store. But at the same time, I was like, This is so cool. And they're like, Can I help you find anything? And I was like, My memories. <laughs> i didn't say that but uh i was just like no no and i bought some stuff it was fun um one of my favorite things to do so subspace comics in uh linwood
1: washington Lynnwood, yep
0: okay uh so yeah uh check them out in uh in uh, washington state not california as i mistakenly said off mic
1: That's well, I, I, I was born in california so you know
0: there you go <laughs> um i was born in ohio so that was lame
1: uh, <laughs> hey ohio it's just as much a part of america as any other state i guess
0: uh <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding uh so chris uh if people are swinging through the streets of new york looking for you where can they find you
1: i find me on twitter at chris clow and um you know the comic binge as well we actually just did it we do live streams every week um and the most recent one that we did was actually on Rob Liefeld's six issues of Captain America during Heroes Reborn from 1996. And we had fun talking about that. And then I'm also on a a podcast called Discovery Debrief, where we talk about new episodes of Star Trek, because there's a lot of new episodes of Star Trek these days. Mm -hmm. And uh, we actually just had Ryan McCaffrey from IGN on our most recent episode talking about episode five from season three of Star Trek Picard, which is a very good season so far. So uh check out discovery debrief wherever you get your podcasts if you like uh if you like the star trek
0: I I I love that uh I'm, I I'm a novice when it comes to star trek uh but oh. I I still I still get excited with like you and uh Zaki Hassan and Zach Moore you know mutual friends of ours uh mm-hmm. when when you all talk star trek I get happy cuz I'm like oh they're in their
1: element and it makes me happy <laughs> hey on the the episode we're recording um uh the next monday from the from the day we're recording which is on march 22nd so the one we're recording on the 27th zach is going to be on debrief to talk oh, about the okay. next episode of picard so you know tune in if you're yeah. inclined spoiler alert though we are uh we are not a replacement for your watching experience we're a supplement to it
0: so, yeah. uh, well, uh fair warning and I appreciate that. Uh I got to catch up on The Card. I I loved season 1. I got to get in on on all that. Um I think the Star first Star Trek movie I ever saw in the movie theater was Nemesis, which I didn't really. I, okay. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't I didn't hate, but I remember going to see it because I thought it looked cool and my best friend leaning to me and going, "Are you like a Star Trek fan? Is that why we're here?" and I was like, "I thought it looked cool." And he was like, "Okay." So, <laughs> And then seven years later, we were both like super excited about the JJ Abrams one. So who knows? That's how Uh, long it took
1: to get another Star Trek movie made. Yeah.
0: It's uh, that and Batman, you know?
1: (laughs) We're going on seven years again, which is kind of hard to believe, but at least we have TV to fall back on this time, unlike last time.
0: Yeah. Paramount Plus is uh, uh, doing a lot of great stuff. Yeah. Um, And uh, as for me, you can find me at Spider Man Books on Twitter. Uh, you can email me spidermanbookclub at gmail dot com. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please write a review, subscribe, get those buds in ears. And uh, we're gonna end this podcast as we always do with our signature phrase: moose and squirrel. That's not right. Uh, Excelsior! That's it. Excelsior! That's how we end it. Almost forgot. Moose and squirrel is funnier though.